Welcome back to In The Queue. I am your co-host, Andrew, and I've never worked in a cubicle proper. I'm your other co-host, Phil, and while I have never worked in a cubicle per se, I can attest that the events in Office Space are quite accurate. (laughs) (laughs) And if that didn't tip you off enough, uh, you should know that we are talking this week about the movie Office Space. Mm -hmm. It was a listener suggestion, and uh, we are about to get into a very good conversation about it with the suggester Mm -hmm. in just a moment. But before we do that, we're going to tell you a little bit about... Tell them. A little bit. It's easy for you to say. (laughs) (laughs) Easy for me to say. A little bit about how to find us online. You can find us either at our website, which is www.in-the-q, that's the letter Q, dot com. And there you can find our blog as well as all of our uh, posted uh, uh, articles and podcasts. Uh, or you can also find us on Facebook at In The Q, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. And there you will find a lot of supplemental materials that we post as well as uh, the actual links to the blog postings themselves. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you can find us on iTunes. Search for In The Q, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil, and we'll pop right up. You can subscribe, and then you can have all of our podcasts delivered to you free of charge and listen to them on any device you choose. Any device whatsoever except a phonograph. Analog. <laughs> that probably wouldn't work. Yeah, we were in the same yeah. – I was going to say record player. Record player, but, yeah. But you went way back. A dictaphone wouldn't work. Wax cylinders. An ear trumpet, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so uh, so come out and find us. Uh, we'll be happy to greet you out there on the interwebs. Mm-hmm. As I said, today we are doing yet another listener suggestion. We are loving it. They are coming in like gangbusters. I don't even know if that phrase works in that context, <laughs> but it's okay. No, but I think we all knew exactly what you were trying to say. They're com- There's a lot of them. There is a yeah. deluge of suggestions coming down. And this one is from Christy in Boston, who is here with us today. Say hi, Christy. Hello, world. How are you? <laughs> right. I think the world's doing pretty yeah. well. Well, I don't know. Maybe the events in the world, <laughs> I mean, you know. Iffy. Yeah, it's been a little iffy. But, but we're doing great, uh, right? There you we're go. Doing, we're doing great. Life is awesome for us. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, so your suggestion uh, for this week's film is Office Space. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why you suggested that to us, why you wanted us to talk about that on the podcast? Well, uh, after my rather unceremonious exit from the uh, world of corporate culture, I ended oh, yeah. up buying myself a red swing line stapler that I keep at my desk at work. And <laughs> uh, shortly before I made that suggestion, my boss had asked to use my stapler, and we started cracking jokes back and forth on it. And we have a 22-year-old law clerk who looked at us and goes, mm. what the hell are you talking about? She'd never heard of it. She'd never seen the movie. Nothing, wow. and we, I, I was gobsmacked because I, I love this movie, and I, I keep forgetting that other people don't have as good taste sometimes, or just haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It's weird to think that there are people who haven't seen this movie too, especially people who sort of came of age when this movie came out in 1999. Yeah, because this is like it's like a cultural touchstone for a generation. Yes. 
So yeah, although although we've gotten to, I think I think we are getting to that age collectively, <laughs> all the people on this uh, podcast that uh, th- those things are starting to happen. I just had a conversation today with uh, one of uh, uh, my colleagues at work who's very young, and uh, she had no idea who Julia Louis-Dreyfus was. Uh-huh. She didn't know the band Pearl Jam. It was a very strange conversation. Yep. <laughs> yeah, because uh, <laughs> you've got people who are now in their 20s who were born in yeah. the early 90s. Yeah. And that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, none of it makes and sense. And they're working at the desk next to you. And it's- exactly. They're they're your bosses. Um, no. Oh they're your God, priests. They're your rabbis. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm going to really quickly sort of go over, uh, even though, as you say, it's a cultural touchstone, Phil, uh, I'm going to go over the plot of Office Space to give you an idea of what it's about, and then we'll get into the discussion. So Office Space is really about one central character, and that is Peter Gibbons, played by Ron Livingston, and he has sort of a group of friends that he works with, uh, one of whose name is uh, Michael Bolton, uh, uh, very unfortunately, uh, and uh, one of whose name is Samir Naginadajar, I think it's right. how he pronounces it at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> I could be wrong about that, but they make a joke about how hard his name is to pronounce throughout the entire film um, and how easy he thinks it is. And uh, and they're sort of a, their own little group of people that are working in this office uh, at a place called Inatech that is, uh, you know, a, a computer company. It's kind of uh, vague what they actually do, I think. Which it is, has. They have programmers. They deal with finance somehow. It's, it's you know, they're software. sort of – It's appropriate. <laughs> yeah. I think it's appropriately vague because it sort of – it just sort yeah. of makes it – it emphasizes sort of the, the, the meaninglessness of – their daily lives yes. at this company. Yes. And, uh, and so Peter Gibbons is uh, sort of pining over the relationship that he is sort of in that's kind of falling apart. And he goes to a hypnotherapist with his uh, girlfriend or, or sort of girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And the hypnotherapist uh, lulls him into a, 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 a state of hypnosis uh, where he is totally relaxed and doesn't care anything about his job. And before he can snap him out of the hypnosis, uh, the hypnotist has a heart attack and dies right there on the floor. Mm. And Peter Gibbons is left in this state of not caring, just sort of total apathy towards his job. And, yeah, and, but ex- and an actual state of extreme bliss as well, like just kind of yes. like just sort of g- gloriously... You know, content smiling like the buddha all the time and, yeah. and just no yeah. no anxiety whatsoever which is a wonderful state to be in i'm sure yeah and 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 prior to this he had uh, had a a big sort of crush on the girl who works at the the local uh tchotchkes tchotchkes kind of tgi fridays ripoff uh <laughs> and uh, and he never had the courage to ask her, of course, but in this new blissed out state, he's very forward and very uh, zen about the entire thing, um, which, of course, becomes infinitely more attractive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and he sort of leads this revolution in a way. He kind of dupes the these uh, 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 efficiency experts who are there to basically fire most of the staff mm-hmm. into believing that he has the right philosophy about everything and that his his way is the right way. And so he actually sort of 
starts to rise in the ranks at Inatech. Uh, and there's all kinds of peripheral characters. There's Bill Lumberg, who's his very sort of condescending, patronizing boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is Milton, who is sort of probably the catalyst for a lot that happens in the film, uh, especially the the sort of climax mm-hmm. of the film. Um, and he's this uh, bespectacled uh, character played... Very awkward character, played <laughs> gloriously by Stephen Root, right. who I love to begin with, uh, and 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 you see these the, their their uh, stories kind of interweave. Oh, and it should be said that the remainder of the plot uh, concerns uh, his two friends. Basically, are on the chopping block. They're going to get fired, and they devise a scheme straight out of Superman three <laughs> to. Take uh, now. Have you very, have you seen Superman three? Can you confirm that? Oh, years ago. Yeah, no, it's it's in there. It is. Okay. It's it's yeah. It's one of the it's whatever Lex Luthor is is plotting to. Or maybe it's not even Lex Luthor at that point. I don't remember. Is that the one with Richard but Pryor? Superman three. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that was the one with Richard Pryor, okay. and then Superman four was just the weird one. Right. The, the black sheep of the Superman family. Yes. Yeah. Well, everything but the first one is kind of garbage. <laughs> no, but. the the second one's really good. Everyone keeps saying it that. It is I, with Terrence Stamp as ne- Zod. Neil before Zod. Uh, maybe I need to go back and watch well, it. Okay, fine. There's supposedly a uh, Richard Donner directed it, right? Yes, yes. I think there's a Richard Donner cut of that, like a director's cut that's supposed to be really excellent. Anyway, we're getting off topic, as we are wont to do. <laughs> they, they are. Their plan is to basically steal fractions of a penny uh, on every bank transaction that happens uh, in and out of Inatech. And eventually, in a few years, they'll have hundreds of thousands of dollars and nobody will have missed these tiny little amounts. Unfortunately, it's the program has been written wrong and they end up, over the course of the weekend, making that hundreds of thousands of dollars and this becomes a problem. That's kind of the plot of the whole movie mm-hmm. and it was a little long-winded, but... Uh, but this is, as you said, one of the seminal comedies of the 90s oh, yeah. and a real touchstone, as you say, for our generation. I think it, it hits dead on a, a million different things about the frustrations of, of our generation and moving into the working class and being uh, 20-somethings in the 90s and the, and the aughts. You know? Yeah. I mean, when I saw this movie, it was soon after it was on video. This is video, mind you, not DVD. Yeah, and oh, yeah. so I was I was about nineteen, and I thought it was really funny and and good, and and I remembered the the cartoons that the movie was based on, because there were these cartoons about the, That's the right. character Milton that were on Sat- Saturday Night Live, like way way deep into every episode. I'm talking like the very last thing in the show before they all get out and say good night, everybody. Like. Right, right. Talking like twelve fifty three, they would show this like thirty second <laughs> Milton cartoon, and they were so bad, they were so unfunny, and every single one ended the same way. And and I'm actually thinking maybe I should not say how they ended because it might reveal too much about the film itself. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But that being said, the joke was how bad they were, and and like they were so they were like anti humor. And it was all about that character, Milton, who was very awkward and he gets pushed around a lot. And really, that's the only thing that that bears any resemblance to the film is the character, Milton. The character of Peter Gibbons is something totally new and different. And I'm glad that they decided to expand the story because 
Milton as himself, based on his cartoons, could not have carried a film. Well, this seems and to be the way be... with a lot of sketches. With the, what the oh, basis yeah. is doesn't really germinate. It's what they add to it that helps just look at Just look at It's Pat for more evidence of that. <laughs> no, or, or don't ever do yeah, that. Just, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That? Sorry I suggested that for you. <laughs> um, the... Uh, it should be said that uh, this film is written and directed by Mike Judge, mm-hmm. who uh, was the animator of those Milton cartoons. And, of course, prior to this, probably most famous for animating Beavis and Butthead, right. the MTV uh, cartoon series that uh, I still think is genius. Uh, <laughs> but this was his first foray into live action feature filmmaking. Right, right. And uh, and since then, he's done many live action feature films. And in fact, more recently, the very successful show on HBO called Silicon Valley, um, he is responsible for. And it is quite good and very much in the vein of this film mm-hmm. office space. Mm-hmm. Like it's really, really great, fantastic comedic cast. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about office space. <laughs> So which of you I know I know I've done this. Which of you have worked in an office environment before? I I, have. I worked at a corporate headquarters for about three years. In fact, I was in charge of something very similar to the TPS reports. I did the DIF reports. I did Ooh. diff reports that nobody in the company wanted to read. <laughs> Only one vice president was at all in favor of me doing the job I was doing, and that's why when they got bought, uh I was shortly after unemployed. <laughs> oh, wow. So that definitely so, rings true to some of the events in the film. I was on a quest at that point to find a calendar and cut out a picture of Lumberg and, you know, put a conversation bubble. Yeah, about those DIF reports. Right. But right. I could not find one. <laughs> oh, that's a bummer. That's a bummer. It would have been a great cubicle decoration. <laughs> yeah. I also, uh, actually not long ago, I worked for a very, very short amount of time at a an internet startup mm-hmm. and I so short that it was basically only a couple of weeks and what happened was I started on and I was hired on as sort of a video producer for them and then uh, a week after I started uh, they had this efficiency expert come in from Bain Capital and <laughs> and he and uh, on the Monday that he came in uh, I was like everything was fine. They had me like doing all of this work and they had, we had all this stuff lined up and everything was ready to go on the Tuesday. My boss pulls me aside and is like, so we need to talk about your schedule. And I was yeah. like, Oh my God, <laughs> it's happening in real life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I firmly believe that office space while very funny is not a satire. No, not one bit. It is funny because it is absolutely true. I did the forty-minute commute, changing lanes back and forth. The only to go thing... and sit in a cubicle where no one cared I was there doing yeah, a job yeah, yeah. no one wanted me to do. There's only the only thing that I would say is is maybe somewhat not like uh, somewhat satirical is the the hypnotherapist who who keels over suddenly you know leaving the hero in this predicament. But but beyond that. I really feel deep down that office space is American neorealism. I talk about <laughs> these, this is a film about ordinary Americans who just deal with their ordinary problems, and there's nothing 
flashy about it. The cinematography is totally utilitarian. There's never any moment where they go for the pretty shot or the beautiful shot. It's all just to serve the story about the characters. And every single character has to deal with the man. And they're all oppressed in some way. And... And I, while it may sound, you know, absurd to compare it to like Bicycle Thieves or, or or some of the classic Italian neorealist films, it's 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 in a similar vein. I'm serious. This is like well, you're you're talking to the guy who, on our last episode, was comparing Sin City: A Dame to Kill for to Terrence Malick films. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that was just ridiculous. Uh, but no, but it's but seriously, it's like uh, Peter Gibbons comes home. He, he knocks on the wall to talk to his neighbor. I mean, he's, he's living in poverty. His apartment, I mean, I really doubt that Mike Judge was like, okay, let's just get an apartment and film it in this apartment. We don't have a lot of time or money. Come on, people. I think that apartment, like everything else, was chosen. It's such a bland apartment. I There's lived that, in yeah. that apartment. Yeah, and now you've got all these posters which Peter Gibbons doesn't have. You know, like his his walls are blank gray walls. I'm looking at Christie's apartment right now, and it's plastered with these colorful movie posters and it's so much friendlier than anything that peter gibbons has in his own home and it's just he's constantly oppressed and it's all completely within the realm of possibility it's there's never a moment where there's anything unrealistic save the moment when he when the hypnotist keels over but right but certain certain things like the when they bring in the efficiency experts for the first time and they introduce the whole work team to the yeah. efficiency experts, and they try and downplay the fact that these guys are here to to cut the fat and like find people who who will lose their jobs. The way they don't they don't address that, but everybody already knows that's what's going to happen. Yeah. And the way Lumberg talks to his minions by like walking up and not even looking at them and saying, "What's happening?" Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like it's just so believable. I worked in an office for three and a half years. And there were problems in that office that weren't addressed in this film, like like really terrible management who would yell at people all the time. But right. but there was but there were certain things that just are across the board that you will find at a, at a company like this. And Office Space touches on so many of them, and it's really funny. But at the same time, you can nod your head and be like, "Yep, that that's happened to me before." You know, my experience yeah. in corporate America, I. I worked at a great committee. We had a, uh, an actual fun committee for the corporate headquarters, and we did something fun every month. But and still, the the movie still resonates with me because it's the, you're right. It's almost universal in corporate America. It's the yeah. same wherever, no matter what else you have around it. And that's why I call it American neorealism too, because I feel like this is what a lot of our American citizens deal with too. What were the fun things that they planned for you guys? Oh, we had ice cream truck come in one month and everyone got free ice cream. Uh, we got a, <laughs> a, a fun to redecorate the lunchroom on every floor, uh, a variety of different things every month. We did um, charity drives every quarter and once for a, a corporate employee who had bladder cancer and ended up dying. But we, the whole company got together and raised thousands of money for him and his family and his kids. I mean... It was wow. it was a really great environment, and then as the day it got sold, everything changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it interesting. Was... It's interesting how like the the company culture really does start from the top down, and it can yeah. change as soon as the the upper management changes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we got I I the CEO walked by my cubicle three or four times a day, 
in the summer, we, he was wearing khakis and boat shoes, or khaki shorts and boat shoes. We only <laughs> dressed up the two days a quarter when the board was in town. That was it. I mean, I really, I had it so good. And wow. even then, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad it's behind me. Well, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but it, it, like you said, it's, it is the quintessential office experience almost. Yeah. Yeah, th- yeah, there's there's certainly a level of uh, just relatability to this. I think even, you know, as you said, Phil, even if you haven't necessarily worked in an environment like this, you still, you've still had a boss like this. You've still had coworkers like this. You've still had relationships with those coworkers like this. You've still known that one really strange guy who you're afraid is, you know, going to do terrible things <laughs> to the office. I think there's somebody like that at every workplace, wherever you are, you know, right. Regardless of whether it's white collar, blue collar or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I think one of the reasons that this became as much of a cult classic as it has become, and it really truly is a cult classic. It didn't have that much popularity when it was in theaters. Um, As with many Mike judge projects, including uh, idiocracy, which has gained a much bigger following in in sort of syndication on mm-hmm. cable television and, and DVDs and, and uh, Netflix and stuff like that uh, has gained a lot more popularity. I think office space really gained traction with the sort of rise of DVD home video and all that kind of stuff. I think everybody that I knew in the early two thousands owned a copy of office space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it really, it really spoke to everybody. And I think it, it's really one of those kind of very unique comedies that really hits hits really deep. It hits at the core of of, of the human experience yeah. in a way. And, it, and it's weird to talk about this movie that way, <laughs> but I think that it's true. And it's I almost feel like the movie is beyond criticism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I mean sure there's things you could pick apart about the film, maybe some details, but but it's just like it seems to come from a real emotional place, a real honest place. A very yeah, I was gonna say a very authentic place. Like I feel like everybody in this film was on the same page. They knew exactly, uh, you know, to to Mike Judge's credit, I would say they knew exactly what movie they were making. Yeah, and and they all nail it. Like every role, it seems you know perfectly cast. Uh, every performance is spot on. The filmmaking itself, as you say, Phil, not particularly flashy, but very assured filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing, you know, there's no extraneous material. There's no, uh, frivolous shots. There's nothing that isn't necessary for kind of moving the, the, the plot forward, the engine of the film forward, you know? Yeah. Um, it's really, it's actually quite a a well made film in almost every respect. Well, I'm looking at the IMDb page right now and Office Space has a rating of 7.9 out of 10, which is phenomenal for any film. Uh, that's higher than, I think, any Terrence Malick film. <laughs> that's fine by me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's weird. It's, <laughs> Let's see if we can bring up Terrence Malick in every podcast from here on out. Yeah, see what he's working on next. Maybe he can call us and put in a request that we can honor. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah. no, but seriously, like it's it's so acclaimed. And when I saw it when I was eighteen years old, I didn't realize how smart it was. Yeah, but seeing I it again a lot more now than I did then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and because it it really captures the bleakness of 
of existence. You know, you're you're out of school. You've got to fend for yourself. You got to make money somehow. Frankly, those people are lucky to work at Inatech, and yeah. but Inatech is still a horrible place to work. And when they're when they're all sitting around the table at Chachkis and they're just sort of like <laughs> boping about their 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 sorry state of affairs, and especially Peter is really getting fed up. It's like, yeah, you know what? I think a lot of people are in that same boat in this country. I really like Samir's it, comment in that conversation. It would be nice to have that kind of job security to still be doing that in twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. But the but the whole um, the whole sort of side plot with Jennifer Aniston's character at Tchotchkes. She works there and she's also dissatisfied though because the corporate. I think one of the statements that this film kind of makes is that the the corporate mentality has bled over into everything. Yeah. And and so even at a place like Tchotchkes, which granted is a corporate entity, I mean those you know TGI Fridays, there's one in every city, and there's like ten of them in every city, um, if not more, and you know that that the ideas of corporate culture uh, permeate all everywhere we go, basically every every restaurant, every uh, every job, every yeah. social interaction that we have is somehow. Uh, affected by this sort of overbearing corporate, uh, you know, even a place like Chashki's where ostensibly the serving staff is supposed to be having fun mm-hmm. there. It's like forced fun. <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're, you're only wearing 15 pieces of flair. <laughs> That's right. You know, I, I want you to want, want to, to wear more. more. <laughs> yeah. Flair. yeah, exactly. That's, that's the bullshit that, that, um, that, uh, Peter's, object of affection has to deal with is that she's constantly dealing with the fact that she doesn't have enough buttons on her apron and that her boss is basically keeps pushing her and pushing her to try and get her to wear more even though it's not required then eventually perhaps inspired by peter she gets kind of fed up with it and completely and then has to sort of liberate herself from the fascism of tchotchkes yes and nice yeah. little aside mike judge is the guy who plays her boss Oh, yeah. I knew he was somebody special, but I didn't know who he was. <laughs> Thanks for telling me that. That was You're the man right. himself. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a very, I mean, it's a very funny movie, of course. I mean, it's a, it's a comedy, but but in the end, there's something hopeful about it. And I will definitely mention to you guys that something similar happened to me at my um, office job. And what happened to me at my office job is there was a certain sort of occurrence, and I'll just, I'm not going to be any more explicit than that in the film, but there was an occurrence that changed the course of the film and and what the characters would do. Uh, In my life, at this company that I worked for for three years and three months, I absolutely hated my job because it was was a toxic environment. The money was great. I bought whatever I wanted. I... I bought airfare, I bought laptops and cameras, and it was like this La Dolce Vita, like for me. Um, and then, and I really wish I had saved some of that money because then I went to grad school and now I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. <laughs> but um, yeah. But what happened was I was, I had typed up my letter of resignation because I got into grad school and I was going to turn it in one morning to the vice president. And I, and I stood in the men's room and I was looking at myself in the mirror. And I had this piece of paper next to the sink, and I thought, 
can't do this now. I can't do it now. So I just stuck the paper um, under my keyboard at my at my cubicle. It wasn't a cubicle. It was like a mass cubicle. I, pu- right. I put it under my keyboard. And then a couple of weeks later, I find out that a tornado destroyed my office building. And I'm not Whoa. even kidding you guys. This was in Sanford, North Carolina. There was a tornado Whoa. that destroyed Plant 10, where I worked, and then Plant 20, which was right next to it, and then a couple of their other plants. And I was... I've never been happier. My girlfriend took a photo of me when I was like, like she took this photo right after I found the news and, and I've never looked happier, but, (laughs) (laughs) but the sad, the sad resolution to the story is a week later, um, I had, as soon as it happened, the, the manager of our team told me to sign up for unemployment and I did that right away and I was unemployed for a week. And then the company called me back to rebuild. Oh, <laughs> so, no. So they put me back to work. And, and then after like a month or so, I, I formally turned in my resignation because I couldn't take it anymore. Uh, and I was going to grad school in the fall, so it was, it was okay. But, uh, but for that moment, that night, though, I, I experienced just utter joy because there was yeah. nobody in the building. It's not like, you felt just like Peter Gibbons. <laughs> just like Peter Gibbons. Yeah, you know, there's something to be said also about the power of confidence, which is the message that Office Space gives us. Yeah, the power of not caring, um, because it is yeah, not being not letting not letting your worries control you. Right, and because it is yeah. when Peter, he's basically forced to learn this lesson, but by the hypnosis, the hypnosis. But once he has that lesson, you can tell that he kind of grows from there. It's not like he's in a constant state of bliss for the rest of the movie. That's not the case. No. Yeah. But he, he's he, with him though. Yeah, he kind of he kind of adapts and figures things out. And then when um when his girlfriend also gets fed up too, she experiences her own liberation from her job. And it's really I don't know if the message is quit your job because it sucks, but maybe it's more something like learn to cope better. And and Peter is uh rewarded by the efficiency experts. For not yeah. giving a shit, for having that kind of confidence, he gets promoted. Yeah. So I think that there is a message in this film that that we can all learn from. Maybe <laughs> it's interesting. I don't know if any of you guys watched. I have the Blu-ray and I watched some of the extras, and some of the deleted scenes might might change that message just a touch. Oh, so, do enlighten us. Tell us. Well, I I can't really do that without giving away how it ends completely. Oh, okay. So. Then don't don't tell us. Well, but that's maybe that's maybe they looked at the film that they had. That's that's actually one of the great things about watching deleted scenes and director's cuts and all that kind of stuff is that you get to see what something could have been had they made slightly different decisions. And if it had gone in a more bleak direction or a a more uh, sort of cynical direction, I would say that's a little more accurate there. Yeah. 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 If it had gone in that direction, then it might not have turned out to be the the beloved film that it is now. That's true. I mean, a lot of people, yeah, a lot, a lot of, of times people don't dig cynicism. <laughs> that's yeah, that's right. I mean, after, I love it. After, but... <laughs> after a film that kind of, you know, it's like an onslaught of, of cynicism. You want to see the hero succeed. And so sometimes getting that at the end is what people really want to see. I mean, a lot of directors sort of find the movie while they're editing 
you know, and, and yeah. they shoot things that they may not use later. I mean, I know Terrence Malick does that, um, yeah. as well as Mike Judge. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I did there? I see what you did. But, of course, my Robert Rodriguez comparisons are, are invalid. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, feel free to make them anyway, I mean. Oh, I see. <laughs> I see how this is going to go. No, but I do have one other, one other interesting bit of, like, uh, relevance uh, of, of this film to my life. I met Richard Reel in person at a film festival in Los Angeles. Really? In 2002, just three years after this movie, Richard Reel, who's the actor who, who uh, played the guy who wanted to create the jump to conclusions mat. Remember, yeah. remember that? It was a terrible accident. Yeah, yeah. Like, it works out, works out better. Like, he His makes out better fun. than anybody else in the movie. <laughs> and he's, he's the nicest guy. And he looks exactly like that in person, too. And sure. uh, I have a photo of, the, of him like, with his arm around me because he was just that friendly. And uh, I had a movie in the film festival, and I, I recognized him. And nobody else who was in that area recognized him. He's, two, he's in two of my very favorite movies. Was, is Casino yeah. one of them? No, I forgot he's in Casino. That's right. Yeah, he's the no, bank was, manager, was, right? Yeah, exactly. The yeah, one who yeah. Joe Pesci says, "Yeah, like, I'm gonna, up. I'm yeah. gonna throw your face <laughs> for this window." Yeah. No, I was thinking Glory. Oh. I haven't seen that in so long. He was, yeah, he was, uh, he was so, he was such a uh, jerk in Glory, like so mean in Glory, and he was also in The Fugitive. Oh wow! Oh, I got that, that. Yeah, um, the one of the cop or yep. yeah, I yeah. He's one of the the detectives working. That he's like one of the those like uh, Chicago guys. I'm I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. he's in there. I can see the face now. The yeah, he's yeah. he's one of those character actors who just shows up all over the place. I mean, like I yeah. I love those guys like William Fickner or Harry Dean Stanton or James yeah. Rebhorn or all these great people who. Uh, well, there's another film suggestion for it. If you haven't seen it, the documentary, that guy who was in that thing, it's on Netflix. Oh, yeah, I, I heard about that, yeah. Oh, I want it, to see it's that. It's really lovely. I, yeah, it's about like all the all the character actors that nobody knows their name, but they're they're in everything yeah. that you see. Chris, are you making a formal request on the air? Well, if you like, we can. Oh! <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sounds good. You're in the running. You're in the running for the most, uh, the most suggestions. You and Monty and... Uh, now KDAP. Wow. And Aaron. It's like a four-way race now. Woo. Awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our podcast for Office Space, the listener suggestion. Again, Christy from Boston, we thank you uh, immensely for yes. suggesting this. I think, I think it can, it's safe to say that we all recommend this movie. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty good idea. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. Um, really great to watch it again because I hadn't watched it in several years, so uh, it was really fun to watch it again. And uh, and thank you so much for for the suggestion, Christy. My pleasure. Yeah. So uh, please join us next week when we watch the new horror film, As Above, So Below. I think that has to be the most poetic title for a horror film I've ever heard. Yeah. It doesn't evoke yeah. horror in the title at all. In yeah, I, I guess that's true. You know, I mean, in a way, it does, right? As above, so below. Said so slightly by Robert Frost. Yeah, by Robert <laughs> Frost. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, but yeah, it's uh it's uh, another of the the 
sort of modern crop of horror films that seem to be never ending. And like every month we get several horror films. It's sort of, it's sort of unbearable almost. Yeah. Let's just but, uh, wait and see how they try to scare us this time. I'm actually excited. I, I love horror movies, so I'm really stoked about it. So please join us for that and we will catch you next time. See you then. So long.